This is episode number 465 with Konrad Kupczynski, managing partner of Impact Advisors. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, John Crone, and we are very fortunate to be joined today by Konrad Kupczynski. Conrad is an absolute master of using data and analytics in a feedback loop to iteratively achieve the goals of your dreams, be they commercial goals or personal ones. Conrad is the founder and managing partner of Impact Advisors, a consultancy that specializes in harnessing data for impact. They structure the various data sources firms have available into thoughtfully constructed data warehouses, and then they layer on top analytics, data science models, and visualizations to enable real-time reports dashboards, and predictions across all the key areas of a business, including digital marketing, customer retention, behavioral segmentation, and ultimately, profit margin. Not only do we cover tons in this episode on using data for commercial success, in the second half of the episode, we dive deep into how you can use data on yourself to iterate on yourself and evolve into whatever sort of person you'd like yourself to be. As a bona fide Ironman and founder of a mobile app for habit tracking, Conrad sure knows what he's talking about in that department too. We do briefly get into the technical details of specific software libraries, tools, and statistical techniques for a few minutes here and there, but overall, this episode should be of great interest to anyone who's keen to optimize themselves or their business using data, regardless of whether you have a technical data science background or not. All right. Let's get into it. Conrad, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Where are you calling in from today? I am near Kingston, New York. So just an hour and a half north of the city. Nice. Yeah, you recently moved out of Manhattan. So you, uh, if I remember correctly, you were born and raised in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. And, yep. uh, but under COVID, you took the opportunity to get some space, some greenery, move up north. Uh, yeah. How's that working? It's great. Um, for now, we're just here full time, but the plan is to be back and forth once everything starts returning. Well, it's already starting to return to normal, but once it really starts to return in full swing. Nice. Well, it must be beautiful. I look forward to checking it out. Um, we have actually yeah. known each other for quite some time. Uh, I don't even know exactly. Probably coming on 10 years that I've known you. Uh, met in New Close York. to that. Yeah, definitely. Met in New York through friends and have always been fascinated by the work you do. I am delighted to be able to have you on the show today so that you can share the work that you do with our audience. So tell us a bit about that. What is it that you do, Conrad? Sure. So I run a data analytics consulting firm. Um, we primarily focus on CPG and direct to consumer companies that are kind of growing past their 
existing vendors and tools. A lot of times they're exporting things to Excel and we come in and help them get past that, get a real data warehouse set up, get real reporting, and then evolve from there to do more complicated and interesting things like predictive analytics and different machine learning analyses, things like that. Nice. And so CPG was a, an acronym that you used there, an abbreviation, Consumer Packaged Goods. I only know that because I talked to you about it right before we started recording. Um, but uh, so that is a, a particular niche. But I guess anything kind of related to that yes. is your client base. So any kind of company that's selling some kind of product to consumers, you work with them yep. as they begin to scale. Although you've also worked with some pretty big clients. We have. So another segment and niche that we've serviced and kind of do work with is um, lar- like innovation teams within large companies or teams that are getting spun up, product launches, things like that. Um, so we've worked with some Fortune 500 companies generally when they have a new product they're launching, a new team that they're launching, something along those lines, and they need to jumpstart and kind of kickstart out of the gate. So it's a similar type of work where we're starting from scratch and helping them build something out that is going to run on a larger scale. Super cool. So tell us a bit about that. Do you have a couple of case studies? Sure. So, um, for example, um, one of our clients I can actually name is a company called Public Goods. They're a um, e-commerce CPG startup out of New York. Um, they sell anything from shampoo to pasta. Um, (laughs) and we kind of came in and helped them, you know, they were, they were doing everything manually and exporting from Excel and, and we helped them build that out and do some reporting on top of that, um, and really get a better understanding of their data. So like really get numbers that they could trust, um, for revenue, for customer lifetime value, for, ROI and marketing analytics, that sort of thing. Um, and then um, kind of, you know, help them hand that over and take that on and, and, and build their own data team out further. Um, another example is, um, you know, it's a similar type of company, products uh, they're selling to different consumers um, and we help them build a real-time P&L. Uh, so they were trying to really optimize what marketing campaigns they're doing and they run probably you know 10 15 20 new campaigns a week on a, like a relatively large scale and they want to be able to know within a day or two you know is this the right campaign for us is this the right audience or is, is, is are all the parameters set up correctly um and they wanted to get past the typical things which are just kind of like conversions that facebook gives you one there's a problem that you know the versions of facebook tracks aren't always accurate um there's cross attribution from Facebook and Google. And then second, um, for this company in specific, it was really important to understand how high quality the the customers they were getting from a given campaign are. And they could tell that based on what packages people were purchasing. Um, And so really understanding the P&L behind kind of like the shopping cart mix was really important to them so that they could see like on a profitability level, is this a profitable campaign because the people are buying the right products and coming back to, to buy the right things. Um, and so to do that, we kind of had to do like a predictive, I guess, PL um, for them so that they could know right away both what was the actual profit on that initial transaction and then also what to expect from that type of a customer going forward. 
Nice. So if I try to summarize at a high level, I think both of those use cases may be kind of, maybe kind of a generalization of what your company does in general. And it's called Impact Labs, which I have failed to mention so far, although I probably well, do. Impact Advisors. Impact Advisors, no. right. Uh, and yeah. Impact with a K. Yes. So if I were to summarize what Impact Advisors does is that you take a company that or a company or team that has a relatively small size, they're probably working on local Excel spreadsheets, or maybe they have Google Drive and they're kind of sharing a few key spreadsheets, but data are in all different kinds of places, all different kinds of formats. There's not really consistency. And so you come in, you organize the data, bring it out of Excel, put it into data warehouses, and I guess allow kind of SQL queries, dashboarding, real-time analytics now to all of a sudden happen so that instead of people not, maybe not working in the dark because they probably have some idea, they can probably look things up, but it's very effortful. You allow them to much more easily get a sense of what's happening in their business, where their valuable customers are, who their valuable customers are, how to better target them with marketing, um, and what kinds of actions they can take are more likely to be profitable or less profitable, something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think to build on the last piece of that a little bit, it's like two areas. One is just making things that they already do available in real time or instantly, whereas in the past, maybe a report would take a few days to get and therefore they can only do it once a month or once a quarter. And now they can do it every day, every hour. And then once that is done, then, okay, well, now that we have these basics, what can we do that's more complex and questions that we can answer or ask that we hadn't even thought about before or had thought about, but didn't have time to address. Nice. Like, for example, behavioral, you know, behavioral segmentation of the audience and trying to really understand, like, what are the segments of our customers? Um, are, the, are our customers the type of customers that we thought we were getting? Um, and there are, if they are the customers that we thought we we're getting, are they buying what we are expecting them to buy? Nice. That is very cool. So let's talk a bit about the kinds of tools that you use on a day-to-day -day basis or that your team uses. So I know that you're the managing partner of Impact Advisors. Yep. And so not necessarily always in the weeds technically, but I know that you do have some experience with that too. So you and I have talked in the past about you using Python and using R. It sounds like people that you hire would also need to have some awareness of Excel if they're going to be porting things over into things like SQL. So tell us about the kind of uh, tech stack that you and your team are using. Sure. So we think about it kind of across like front end, back end, although it's not the traditional software development model, but more like the way that businesses use data. And on the front end side, it's a lot, you know, a lot of Excel, especially in the prototyping stages. Um, and then that all from like, once we start getting more automated, we get into using tools like Power BI and Tableau for really showcasing what is coming out. Um, and then kind of on the data modeling side, it's a lot of SQL. Um, and then when SQL gets too complicated, going into Python, um, and then we use Python for, you know, it's predictive and library capabilities. Um, and 
within that, there are pack there are different like packages that we use. So SK Learn, obviously, we use a lot of, um, and Splink is one we've actually started using more Splink. lately for. I've never heard. Yeah, of for Splink. it's a um, it runs on Apache Spark. Um, so generally, it's something we're deploying into the cloud, but it's use we use it for matching purposes. So that's another big thing that we see clients have issues with is um, matching data, whether it's like matching company names from two different data sources. Um, so that helps with that. Or another example is like matching leads to uh, to data that's been purchased about those leads or business data. And so it can really work at large scale. Like one of these projects we've been working on is like we're matching across, I think, like 30 million records on either side. Um, and it lets us scale that up and really get that good data, which then is given to the sales force to give them insights as they go in um, to do, uh, you know, to have conversations. That's super cool. Um, so, yeah, so those are, yeah, so those are some of the, some of the tools. I mean, you know, just, um, yeah, I would say. You also, you mentioned Apache Spark there quickly. You want to tell us a bit about when you would use that? So... We use it specifically in this use case for using for for matching. So basically, right, right, instead right. of doing the matching locally, right, right, right. we are uh, deploying it on a uh, AWS service, which lets us do use much higher computing power. Um, you know, when we're working with like thirty million records, um, it wouldn't really work so well <laughs> on on our computers. Yeah, because it's so, like if you had yeah. two tables of thirty million. Doing the comparison of yeah. every name in one 30 million table to another 30 million yeah. table, it would take yeah. a long time. Yeah. On a local machine. It takes, yeah. Luckily, there's ways to segment it down, right? Like across states and, and things like that. But it's still, it still ends up being a lot. Nice. And so, what kinds of techniques do you use? Do you end up using any particular kinds of models very often, like statistical techniques? So, when you're using R or SK Learn, and you're doing things like behavioral segmentation, are there particular kinds of, of models that you rely on? Um, it sort of depends what we're uh, doing. Uh, a lot of times it'll be kind of like fit for purpose. Honestly, um, a lot of our work doesn't rely on complex modeling, but rather relies on more of like the traditional data modeling um, and putting together, you know, joining data across different data sources. So getting like a really robust customer record from different sources. And we don't necessarily need any complicated library to do that. Um, we just need to have an understanding of what the different sources are and what we're looking for and how to do it. But when we do get to more like kind of predictive or machine learning uh, applications, one project recently, like we've been using like XGBoost um, for predictive modeling, right? Um, or uh, logistic regressions as well. It's like something we, you know, kind of like a couple of the places that we see ourselves coming back to often. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Logistic regression is a workhorse, you know, not a, yeah. not a huge number of predictors in the model, maybe a dozen or 20. And you've got one outcome, a binary outcome that you're, yeah. you're predicting. Is yeah. this customer, is this prospective customer going to buy or not? Uh, right. I imagine yes. is something that you use logistic for a lot. And XGBoost, yep. let's expand on that for a moment for our listeners. So XGBoost uses a technique called decision trees at its core. 
Um, so decision tree is, it's, it's pretty hard to describe without a diagram, but basically if you have a bunch of predictors that you're using to predict some outcome, a good way of doing it, I, I, one that I use in some of my teaching is a data set from the Titanic on passengers. And so who survived and who didn't survive. And so you can use a decision tree to predict whether an individual would survive or not. And so with, with the tree, the first branch of the tree would typically be the branch that has the most impact. So for the Titanic, it was something like, were you a male or a female? So females had a much higher survival right. rate. So that can be like a first branch of your tree. And then down the female leg, you could then split on like age or number of family members and down the male leg, the same thing. And in the end, you'll discover that uh, class is very important in the model. Anyway, so a random forest takes a whole bunch of these decision trees that you create on subsamples of your data. And XGBoost is a technique that builds on top of random forest where, shoot, how can you describe exactly? You're basically, you're figuring out where your model makes its errors and refitting based on where those errors happen to have the errors happen less in the future. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's super useful for us also because a lot of times people want to understand what a model is predicting and why. Um, and it gives you at least some insight into that. It's not like a complete black box. Um, so like, for example, uh, there was a project we were doing for insurance company and they're uh, very regulated. So they can only make pricing decisions in certain ways, and they have to be able to explain their pricing decisions to the regulator. Um, so that was a good fit for them in that case, because they could really start to understand what were the underlying factors that were going in. Nice. That's a really good use case. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. Yes, the platform is called Super Data Science. It's the namesake of this very podcast. In the platform, you'll discover all of our 50 plus courses, which together provide over 300 hours of content, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. So thank you for filling us in a bit on the tools that you use regularly, the kinds of techniques that you apply, when you're looking to hire someone, what skills do you look for in them? What kinds of people do you hire? Yeah, so we have a little bit of a different approach um, than most companies do in that we basically hire in two categories. We hire either uh, entry level or we work with highly experienced contractors. Um, so we that works for us because we have the ability to tap really knowledgeable resources while developing talent in our own way of client service and product management or, of, or product development or service development. Um, and then on the entry level side, what we typically look for is we're looking for people that already have a deep understanding of Excel, some understanding of SQL, and then 
are able to write a memo uh, is kind of the way that we um, is the way that we test, right? So we have a three part test, which is uh, an Excel challenge, a SQL challenge, and a like business memo challenge. And we find that if somebody can do really well on all three, they'll do really well in our business. Um, but you know, there you'll you'll have people that are really good at Excel but can't write, and that just doesn't work when you're working with clients, communicating with people, and all that. Um, so that's kind of the way that we think about it. Um, and that requires a little bit of extra work because we do a lot of training. Um, but we find that that kind of pays off for us, um, because we have people that are really dialed in into the way that we're working. Nice. That was a really clear answer. And that sounds like a really interesting business model to me. So training people in-house that can become experts in dealing directly with your clients but also then interfacing with these highly experienced contractors. And if memory serves, you've been working with highly experienced remote contractors for a long time, like pre-pandemic, yep. you've been for years working in that kind of way. And so that allows you to find the most talented people for a given problem anywhere in the world. So I, I remember years ago, you were working with contractors in Africa, for example, yeah, so our our contractors are spread all over the world. Like we have contractors in the U.S. Uh, and in South America, in Europe, in Africa, in, in India, Pakistan, all over. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. And so, how do you manage that? How do you? So, if you've been, you know, a lot of us now have been remote for the last year, but how how have you been managing this for years? How have you been making it work? Uh, and having a successful business working remote like this for so long? Um, a lot of it is about structure. So uh, we use um, a bunch of different tools, but they're, none of the tools themselves are going to be that different than what everybody else uses. So you know, we have Slack, we have Asana, um, we use um, GitLab, um, but then on top of that, we also like, so we really believe in, we use a tool called Seven Geese, which is um, a performance management tool is the way that we use it. And we're really big on making sure that we're using it. And like, so we do quarterly performance reviews. Um, and within that, we also do like weekly one-on-ones. Um, so I do a weekly one-on-ones like each of my direct reports um, and other managers do the same. Um, and I think that sort of structure lets us make sure that we are getting feedback and having those conversations frequently on the kind of like human capital development side. On the work itself, um, we have our own kind of version of probably bastardized to some extent Scrum combined with other product ma management methodologies to kind of pull everything together. And so uh, that all kind of lives in Asana and we make sure that everything is being managed around that. And we have a framework that then, so like each task gets tracked against you know, tool harvest that we use for time tracking. Um, and we use that for forecasting as well. So we can see like where are people gonna be overbooked or under and how can we oh, be nice. allocating different resources and all that. Um, and um, the biggest piece I think that we use from Scrum is like the retrospective. So we do retrospectives on a biweekly basis, um, which really helps us because typically what we'll do is we'll have a retrospective, you know, what went well, what didn't go well. 
and um, you know, we'll celebrate what went well. And then a lot of times, like at least 50% of the didn't go well turn into after action reviews, um, which help us really like, then we go and do that and take that kind of separately and go and spend half an hour, an hour with the team that was involved and really think about like, how can we do this better next time? What changes can we make? Um, and I think the unifying thread throughout that is really documentation of, so doing things in partially in a written way, but documenting what we're doing, documenting what we're planning on doing, and then reflecting and doing a feedback loop on that. And that's what's really helped us, I think, most over the years, because I don't think even now that we do it in a perfect way, but the fact that we're constantly iterating on it, constantly getting feedback, constantly changing it means that even from like a week to week basis, we're making significant changes that lead to better results for our clients and for us and for everybody involved. Nice. That's cool. So I imagine a lot of listeners know what a scrum process is, particularly anyone that does software engineering or works on a software engineering team, but probably quite a few of our listeners also don't know scrum very well uh, because you might not be doing software development and not every software developer or software development firm uses scrum, but uh, I'll try to summarize it in a couple of bullet points is that you break down periods of work into cycles. So a common cycle, it sounds like the one you're talking about is a two week cycle. That might be the most common kind of scrum yeah. cycle. And um, at the beginning of the scrum, you kind of, you'd have an idea of what should be accomplished by the end of that two week period. And then you typically have daily standups or near daily standups to see where people are getting blocked on their particular tasks to reach that two week goal. And then what you've been talking about specifically, the piece that seems to work really well for you is those retrospectives on that two-week cycle. So you get to the end of the two weeks, you say, okay, two weeks ago, we we planned on getting all this stuff done. Where are we on right. that? And if we didn't get there, what's wrong? And you're saying documentation is, yeah, I can imagine is extremely helpful for having that work well. Yeah, in a, in a lightweight way though, because it's you can definitely get into these cycles of or into this pattern of just doing too much documentation, too much process, all of that, right? And so it's this constant balance, I feel, of going one direction where we don't have enough and then, okay, we need a process for this. We need to think about this. We need to think about this. And then three months later, we're like, okay, this is too much. And we have to rip some parts, some stuff apart. And how do we do it differently? Um, and so actually Scrum, to some extent, like pieces of Scrum were a little too much for what we're doing, partially because we're working across so many different projects. Like we might have one person working across a couple different projects. Um, and so like the biggest pieces that really work for us are like the daily standups, the retrospectives. Um, and then, uh, those two really are, we find like drive the most, and, you know, there's other pieces of scrum, like, um, task pointing and, uh, uh, sprint, like more formal sprint planning that we don't do as much of, um, we have tried in the past, but it's tough, uh, you know, in this sort of an environment where we're kind of trying to adapt and move quickly from different priorities. Right, 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 right. So the task pointing would be assigning a certain number of story points, I guess you typically call them. So how, how yeah. complex is a task? And so you can rate the complexity and say, okay, well, you know, this team with these people has a certain capacity to do these many points in the scrum. Um, and yeah, I can see how, especially if you're working with quite a few different clients and you're balancing that, that sometimes you've just got to meet yeah. the deadline. It's not like a right. multi-year software project 
where yeah yeah you can kind of be like all right we'll just i guess we didn't get it yeah. in that two week period so right. let's try again the yeah. next two week period a little bit better yeah, yeah. um you feel like yeah. no that deadline's come and gone like the client expected that last yeah. week so got it. yeah definitely cool all right so that is very helpful hearing about the processes that are helpful as well as the particular tools that you're using so We've learned a ton about impact advisors and the impact that um, a consultancy firm like yours can have on a company by bringing data together, by making it easier to run queries or have automated reports against those data and therefore become a more efficient, more profitable company. How did you find yourself in this position? You're pretty young and you're managing a highly international distributed consultancy firm with tons of big name clients. Um, how did you, how did you end up here? Yeah. So like, like I think most people's paths, it was a little bit of a random walk, I guess. Um, my, I started in the management consulting space, but with, with a, with a focus on data. So my first uh, job at a college was, for a company that did management consulting often on data, but we wouldn't really do the implementation or we would basically like contract out the implementation. Um, and that got me interested in the space. Um, but over time I got more and more interested in the actual implementations and doing the technical work. Um, and from there I kind of went and, uh, I worked at that company for a while and then I kind of, uh, went and started freelancing on my own um, while working on a kind of variety of different projects. Um, and while freelancing, uh, basically, you know, the, the kind of origin story is that there was a client that wanted more of my time. And I kind of threw out a, a big number for me at the time of like, well, this is what is going to really, you know, take to, to have me more focused on your, on your work on a, on a day-to-day basis. And they went for it. And then that was kind of the, okay, well, now I can think about this as a, uh, as something to build, um, and really build on that. And that's kind of like how I, you know, what the journey was to, to, to where I am now. Nice. Um, are there particular, and I have a feeling that there are. So from conversations that I've had with you in the past, I know that you spend a lot of time thinking yourself about performance and productivity. We haven't talked about that yet in this episode. I think we should probably open that up. Uh, tell us sure. about how you structure your day, your life. I know that there's a lot of different cycles. So in the same kind of way that a scrum cycle could be two weeks, I know that you have daily kind of retrospectives as well as you used to certainly have them kind of monthly or quarterly about what you're doing with your life and how you can be more on task with um, reaching your end goals. Yeah, definitely. So it's very similar to the way that we run the business. Um, I think the core cycle for myself personally is a daily one. As you alluded to, I have a daily process that I go through that kind of gets me ready for the day that is, has, it's, it's basically a checklist of things that includes like clearing out email, checking the calendar for the day, um, setting up tasks, organizing tasks, and then kind of like putting those on the calendar 
um, so that I can actually tell that I'm actually going to be able to complete the things I am going to be able to complete. And that's kind of the core of it is this, this daily, um, I call it a, kind of like a daily evolution for myself. And that happens on a daily basis. And then from there, there's a weekly cycle. So I have a weekly checklist. There's a monthly checklist. There's a quarterly checklist. And then it goes to like a yearly checklist that I do every year around the new year. Um, and that all kind of flows together with at each level, there's different steps that cause different levels of reflection and thought process. Um, that kind of helped me keep moving forward. And, and as part of that, I'm also tracking a bunch of different metrics on a daily basis that kind of help me see whether I'm in, in a, in, in a good place or not. Um, and that's varied wildly over the years. Like I think now I've been tracking things on a daily basis, probably for like six or seven years. And I actually took like a year or two break a few years ago. Um, and it's been, it's gone from, you know, like at, at, at a low point of tracking none or, or maybe just five or 10 things to at a high point of tracking like 90 or hundred things on a daily basis. That's, that's um, what I remember most recently. The last time I asked you how many things yeah. you're tracking, I think you're at about 90. Um, yeah. Do you have any specific examples of things from those 90 that you've realized since were you were tracking too much? <laughs> Um, I can't remember really what are the things that I've tracking too much of. I do know that the things I keep coming back to tracking are sleep, sleep quality, exercise. Um, recently I've started, uh, getting on, I started on doing like Pomodoro method for task management and I've been tracking the number of those on a daily basis. And I find that's really good. I, and I also track like focus and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, it, it kind of depends on what I'm. I think I, you know, I got to 90 because I was trying to change all these different things. And every time I would change something, it would take like a few months to do it. And then I'd get in the habit of it and then I'd keep it on the list and then I'd go to the next thing. And so then it would slowly accumulate it up to 90, but it did get to be a lot. And that's when I said I stopped for a year because I was like, okay, this is too much. Um, And I stopped for a year and then, but then a year later I did my review and I realized that that I actually did need to track some, but not everything. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's a classic thing of getting that balance, right? Just like with the scrums of what's right. the right amount of keeping track of yeah. information. And so it was years ago, and I don't know, five, six years ago that you showed me your process. At that time, it was a spreadsheet for keeping track of habits on a daily basis. And to me, it was so intuitively the thing that I needed in my life to be more productive I latched onto it immediately. I have been doing it every single day since you first showed that to me, whatever, six years ago now. So now I have a series. So I have a a spreadsheet for each year. And uh, and the things that you're outlining are the most important, I think, as well. So uh, leading indicators of my productivity and my happiness, sleep for sure, getting, you know, hours of sleep is huge. If if you're a listener and you don't track your sleep or you're not conscious about how much sleep you're getting, it is crazy. So that's a that's an example of a strong leading metric that I track. But I also track things like how focused was I today? How happy was I today? And when I get a full night's sleep, when I get eight, nine hours in bed, I enjoy my whole day. And I have patience with myself and with other people. But as soon as that gets just a little bit lower, 
six hours, seven hours, I'm a markedly different person. I don't love my work. And if you don't love your work, you're not going to be as productive. You don't enjoy doing it and uh, you're easily distracted. So yeah, that's huge. Exercise is something that I track in there. Anyway, I greatly appreciate you showing me that. And something that you haven't talked about is at one point that even developed into an app. It was in the iOS store, in the Apple store. Yeah, it was. And I think it's technically still there, but I'm not sure that it's functional. Um, but it was an app called Build Habits. Um, honestly, it didn't encompass everything that we wanted to do with it in the way that we wanted it to work. And so I personally have also gone back to using a spreadsheet. Um, but that's probably something that will that I will return to at, at, at a later date. Have you seen... so? I use a fitness tracker or a heart rate monitor called Whoop, which I know you've also used. So it's for people who aren't aware, it's a relatively new fitness tracker. It's something that their marketing is around being always on. So you don't even need to take it off to charge it. So the battery pack charges separately. You slide it on. If people are watching the YouTube version, I'm showing it on my arm right now. And so I just have this thing on my arm all the time. I take it off to shower, but I don't have to. I could wear it in the shower. I just don't like having a wet band on my arm for like an hour after I get out of the shower. Yeah. And so this thing, it tracks your heart rate, it tracks how much you're moving around. And so you can look at relationships between um, sleep and activity, and it gives recommendations. It says, based on how much activity you had today, you know, you had a really big workout, so you should get a, you know, an extra hour of sleep tonight. If you wanna get that extra hour of sleep tonight, you're gonna to need to spend an extra 90 minutes in bed tonight and it recommends when you go to sleep and when you wake up. So anyway, Whoop, I think it's really cool. I know you've used it in the past and you've actually, um, you've, you've found that the Apple Watch was better for your use case, if I remember correctly. I just found that um, it was not a large enough difference in terms of the data that I was getting that it was worth keeping and charging and maintaining <laughs> yeah. two different devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having, um, having there are apps on the Apple Watch, like having something yeah. on both wrists. So like there's, right, yeah. So there's, there's, there are some apps that do, like on the Apple Watch, that do that give you like a readiness score, which is similar to what the Whoop does. Um, and I found that that is, you know, that's one of the things I track on a daily basis is my readiness score. Um, and I found that it, you know, that it's that it's it's not as as hundred percent good as the Whoop. Um, but given that I am using the Apple watch for other things anyway, um, it, it, you know, I sort of consolidated in that one thing. Although I have been tempted to, uh, to re to redo the two, the two wrist thing lately. So we'll see. I don't know that might happen at some point. Uh, we'll see. So one of the, where I was going with that. So I ended up needing to describe whoop and then I kind of wanted to explain it to listeners anyway, but. I don't know if you know this or not. You probably don't because it's something that's happened relatively recently. I think it's happened since you've had Whoop. I don't know why you would know about it, but it has the swipe left, swipe right on daily habit tracking that you implemented in your app. Oh, it's it's identical. Cool. So you okay. there's this huge list of daily habits that you can choose to have or not. So because I'm doing mine in a spreadsheet separately, I don't keep very many on the Whoop. Um, but when you wake up in the morning and it gives you your readiness score, so it says, okay, your resting heart rate overnight, your heart rate variability overnight, the quality of sleep that you had, you're ready for a really big run today. 
And also, please log your habits. And in fact, actually, it prompts yeah. you to do the habits before. It gives you the, the readiness for your day. So you kind of, okay. for me, I'm working yeah. out in the morning. So I'm kind of waiting to see how ready I am. Yeah, what kind yeah, of workout yeah. am I going to have today? And while I'm waiting for that, I fill in the habits. And it's exactly so. It's like swipe left for no, swipe right for yes on whichever habits you selected. So I think the only ones that I track in there are um, caffeine. So did I have, how much caffeine did I have the day before? So you can also, you can optionally put in like how many cups of caffeine you had. Um, And that's like the really important one that potentially varies for me and has a big impact on my sleep quality. Right, right, right. But they also then do predicted analytics or actually it's not really predictive. I guess you could use it for predictive, but it, it then tells you, so you get a monthly report and you can go back and look. So if, you know, I do drink coffee every day, so it's not a really good example, but let's say on half of days I drank coffee yeah, yeah, and then the other half I didn't, it could, it would then show me the impact of that on my sleep quality, on my resting heart rate, on my readiness. And anyway, it's kind of a cool thing. <laughs> That's cool. It's definitely making me want to reconsider <laughs> trying it out again. At least to check that out. Yeah, I might do that. It kind of yeah, it bakes in analytics that you might be doing uh, manually. Um, I also yeah. want to highlight so something else that you talked about there was the Pomodoro technique, which is a technique for doing twenty five minutes of work and then five minute breaks. And by doing those kinds of sets, you can be productive for long periods of time because you can pretty much in almost any job you can. You can switch your phone off, your email off for 25 minutes at a time. And so it's a great way to stay on task with some deeper work. And if you're interested in hearing about that and you missed the episode, I did an episode, a five-minute Friday, episode 456 on the Pomodoro technique specifically, so you can check that out. And the thing that inspired me doing that episode was a phone call with you shortly before um, that. I was like, oh, I should do an episode on that after talking to you about (laughs) the Pomodoro technique. Nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. I found that to be really helpful. Um, and cause I, for a long time tracked a focus score, like it just one, two, three, three, highly focused two mediocre one, just completely off. Right. Um, and I find that the number of Pomodoros I completed the day before is a much better indicator. And it also, uh, I know we've talked about that you, use it also sometimes for meetings, but I've also, I don't use it for meetings. Yeah. So it also gives me an idea of when I'm actually have like time for focused work. Um, and it's really interesting because it's basically only like one or two days a week that I get like a real un, like stretch of focused time. And the rest of the time is, um, you know, spent with interactions and all that. And to like try and optimize that is interesting. I completely understand. I flip flop all the time on whether I should be putting meetings in or not. I'm like, well, I was really focused yeah. in that meeting continuously for those yeah. two hours. It was like, I, you know, I wasn't checking email or doing anything else. I was completely in that meeting. So I was like, is that a Pomodoro? Yeah. But it, it probably shouldn't really be. I, I do different, like I fill in a red circle if uh, for, for the 25 minute block, if I was actually okay. like running the Pomodoro clock and, and focused on my own. And Got I just, it. I just okay, circle yeah. a circle in red if I'm like marking yeah. down meetings and I should break it out in my daily habit tracking. I think I should break it out into two separate rows, but I haven't done that yet. Maybe this conversation will spur me to actually do that. Cause it, I think yeah. there's different, there's, there's value in knowing kind of generally speaking, how productive I was over the whole day across all kinds of tasks. Right. 
But there is, you're absolutely right. There's something special about that uninterrupted time alone where you can get that deep work done. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And it seems to be working for you. You have, you know, you're managing this international company. But something we haven't even had a chance to talk about on the episode is that you are a bona fide Iron Man. So you've done a yeah. full length Iron Man. And one of the things that blows my mind about that is that it was your first triathlon. So uh, breakdown for, for listeners, what's involved in a full length Ironman triathlon? Tell us about the stages and how long they are. Um, so I might mess up the distances a little bit, but it's something like 2.6 miles swim at the beginning. Um, and then it's 112, I think, mile bike ride. And then you do a marathon at the end. <laughs> so it's 24 and a half miles run. Yeah, 26.2 miles, I think, is a marathon, yeah. 26, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and I guess that was that was a few years ago now, and I think I'm actually kind of getting to the point where I'm like, oh, maybe I'll do it again. But it's it's, it's taken a few years since I did the first one. Definitely not one of those people. You have people that get into the Ironmans, and they do like three a year. Uh, that, that has not been my experience. But I think I'm getting close to, to, to doing another one. So. Nice. And so all of these techniques, I think tracking is key to that success because you were able to, through planning, through these kinds of cycles that you have, the weekly, monthly, yearly cycles, uh, and review on your process, you were able to train for that crazy distance. And so if people aren't kind of, if you can't imagine in your mind, well, actually, I mean, even think about how long it takes to drive 112 miles in a car. So if you're on a highway, <laughs> going the typical speed limit in most countries, it takes you two hours to go 112 yeah. miles in a car. And so that's the bike leg in between a really long, typically open water swim, and then a literal marathon, a 26 mile run, which is the longest distance that pretty much anybody ever trains to run. So I think, so what did it take you, like 12 hours to do that? Um, I think my time was... Around 13 hours, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. It's amazing that it can be done in a day. And anyway, you were able to do that uh, without, ever, without ever having done a shorter triathlon distance before. And I think so that's a, that's a testament to you know, this kind of planning, keeping data on yourself, reviewing the data, and yep. uh, iterating and improving from there. So a philosophy that transcends through your life as well as your business philosophy and now something that you've for years been bringing to other businesses and allowing them to capitalize on data and tracking more and more real time it's cool man it's a really cool story yeah i mean i, I would say it's like you know it, it sounds very different in terms of the applications and all that but it's basically the same principles it's just how do you figure out how to track something in a way that is painless and then how you iterate on it, right? And it's the same thing that I'm doing personally. It's the same thing that we do for clients. Um, it's really, it's just like, you know, for a business, the metrics are a bit harder to track uh, than they are for an individual. So that's why there's more work into <laughs> figuring out what they are and how to and how to calculate them and all that. Yeah. But it's the same process. Yeah, you can't business-wise, across a business, wake up in the morning and say, how how great did we do yesterday and put it on a scale right. one, two, yeah. or three? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. It takes a little more a little more digging than that. Cool. All right. So tell us one question that we always ask, and I have a feeling you'll have a really interesting answer. Is what are you reading right now? Do you have any book recommendations for us? 
Sure. So I'm uh, in the process of probably like a year long project, I think, um, to read a biography of every U.S. president. Um, and I'm getting pretty far along. So I just. You, you did it chronologically, right? Yeah, chronologically. Um, so I'm in the finishing chapters of a uh, biography on Gerald Ford. Oh, yeah, you're getting um, there, 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I uh, can't say that I necessarily recommend it that much as a standalone book, but in the context of all the different presidential biographies, it's interesting. The one I'm reading is is um, called Ambition, Pragmatism, and Party. Um, but I think that, you know, I would have two notes on, on this project and t- takeaways. One is just that it's so interesting seeing um, presidents and just individuals from different perspectives, and especially early on when, you know, starting with like George Washington and then John Adams, you read these biographies and they overlap so much. And it could be, you could sort of think that, oh, it's kind of boring. I'm hearing the same story over and over. Um, but you get a different perspective on the same story, which I think is really interesting because it really points to how uh, each of us is kind of living a different story, how each business challenge that happens has different sides to it, whether you're the customer, whether you're the company, whether you're a competitor. And just thinking about those things really helps um, think about like even, you know, our, my day to day, like the, the business and, and data and, and different analyses from different perspectives um, to really think about, like, how can you better advance uh, those things that you're doing by taking a different look at it? Um, but in terms of like a specific book, um, the one that the, the one that impressed me the most, honestly, probably out of all of them, it has been. Um, Robert Caro's uh, five-part series on Lyndon Johnson, mm. um, which I think is just called like the life of, of Lyndon Johnson or something like that. Each title has a different, each volume has a different title, um, but he goes into so much depth about these, the rise and the career of Lyndon Johnson to the extent where, you know, he talks about how Lyndon Johnson was powerful in the Senate but instead of just saying, hey, he did a really good job in the Senate and he got this in this pass, he spends, you know, a couple chapters on this is how the Senate works. This is why it was dysfunctional before Lyndon Johnson came into it. And this is why it's so important and impactful that he was able to get this legislation passed that he did, right. even though he got criticized so much during the time for that. Uh, and it really gives you this context. And again, makes you realize how the power of storytelling and really understanding and putting things in context, like tying it back to data, right? Like really the power of putting the things that you're presenting in context to your readers, because you might have some amazing insight that you've seen because you've been down in this data for maybe months, even years. And you say, look, it's like, it's right there. This is the the best thing ever. Right. But your, your, your audience is going to say, well, that's great, but I don't either. I don't know why that matters. I don't believe it, um, and so that is, you know, really gives you this understanding of why it's so important to kind of like tell this whole story of how and why what you've discovered matters. 
Um, Amazing. And so that, and, and I think that that series really just puts the rest of the biographies to shame. Like now I'm reading these, you know, I read the Richard Nixon and, and, and now on Gerald Ford and I'm like, yeah, these are great, but they're very high level and, and uh, you know, almost, almost surface level compared to, because uh, compared to like, I think it's like thousands of pages on one person. Right, right. So, right. You're, you're like, who do you think I am? I mean, I'm the kind of person who reads every biography of every president. You think that this high level bull crap is going to be good enough for me? Yeah. What are you thinking? Yeah. And it's interesting yeah. that name Robert Caro is a name that I know. And I don't know why. Does he do a lot of biographies? So he's done a couple biographies. So another one that he's really well known for is um, um, uh, on Robert Moses. Uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. It's called The Power Broker. Um, and if anything, he might be um, just as famous or if not more famous for having for written that one. And so for those of you who don't know, Robert Moses was... Um, the head of, I think eventually the Triborough Authority, but basically in, in New York City, he was from the 1920s until the 1960s, the, one of the largest influencers on, why, on, on city infrastructure. So he got parks built, he got highways built, and he's very controversial for a couple of reasons. One, he was very car focused. Um, mm -hmm. so he knocked down a lot of neighborhoods to build big highways through them. And he was the one who wanted to knock down the, the West village and build a highway through it. Um, and he also, um, was, had some, uh, classist and racist tendencies, uh, there. He felt like his parks should be most accessible to people of the middle class, often white. Right. Um, but he did get a lot done. Uh, and he did, you know, increase overall quality of life. So it's again, very interesting story. Same with Lyndon Johnson. You know, there's, you read about Lyndon Johnson and his path to power is all of this very, um, you know, he's a very corrupt politician, very much like, uh, doing things for favors, um, you know, using dark money, getting cash from donors, all sorts of tricks. But he was the first person to be able to pass any sort of civil rights legislation in the Senate for, I think it was like, you know, 50 plus years was, and the first time it was passed was under him. And the first thing he passed was also not that great. You know, there was all sorts of problems with it, but he got something passed. Um, and so I think that Robert Caro really is fascinated with this kind of gray area of these people that can be really painted as villains and on, in certain situations are, but their story is often more complex than just that. Nice. That was an amazing set of stories. I am excited to be able to read either of those. Uh, I guess I was going to say books, but it's actually four books, three LBJ yeah. books and one Robert Moses book and tying yeah. it into the overarching narrative of data and telling a story. You're doing my job for me. So thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. All right, Conrad. So thank you so much for being on the show. Um, is there anything so... I imagine, given your line of work, if we have listeners that um, are looking for help with getting their data structured, having analytics be more real-time, being able to make better predictions from their data, visualize their data, any of that kind of reporting, they should probably be reaching out to you, right? I guess, especially if they're working in consumer packaged goods. Yes. Yeah. In, in general, you know, our, our, our greatest level of expertise is around CPG growing firms in that, 
um, in general, anything that's being sold online um, directly to consumers often. And then, um, yeah, I'll kind of leave it there. Nice. So how should people get in touch with you either for uh, further biography recommendations or for uh, business inquiries? Sure. So um, LinkedIn is easy. Uh, Or you can go on our website, which is just impactadvisors.com. Impact is spelled with a K. (laughs) Um, And either place is, is, uh, is, is the best place to go. Nice. All right. Thank you so much, Conrad, for being on the show. Super fascinating to have you here. And hopefully we'll have you again soon. Thank you. And likewise, very much enjoyed it. Wow, what an impressive individual Conrad is. He blew me away at the end there with his knowledge of the biographical literature after all of the earlier technical and commercial insights. In today's episode, we covered leveraging data and analytics for iteratively improving a business across all aspects, from optimizing marketing campaigns through to predictive real-time profit margin calculations. Specific data science tools and approaches for making these commercial improvements possible, including Splink, logistic regression, and XG Boost. Conrad also provided tricks for successfully running a completely distributed company, including incorporating some scrum techniques, engaging highly experienced contractors, and hiring adaptable entry-level full-time employees that meet your core needs. We also had guidance for your own personal evolution driven by data and analytics, including habit tracking, methodical reflection periods, and physiology monitoring tools like Whoop, and the Apple Watch. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URLs for Conrad's LinkedIn profile at superdatascience.com 465. That's superdatascience.com 465. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, where we have a video version of this episode. And you're welcome to add me on LinkedIn, but it might be a good idea to mention you were listening to the Super Data Science Podcast so that I know you're not a random salesperson. As this is a free podcast, if you happen to be looking for a way to help me out, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating of my book, Deep Learning Illustrated on Amazon or Goodreads, gave some videos on my YouTube channel a thumbs up, or subscribe to my free content-rich newsletter on johncrone.com. To support the super data science company that kindly funds the management, editing, and production of this podcast without any annoying third-party ads, you could create a free login to their learning platform at superdatascience.com, or consider buying a usually pretty darn cheap Udemy course published by Super Data Science, such as my Machine Learning and Data Science Foundations Masterclass. All right, thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another amazing episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.